0: Every week brings more uncertainty, and if you're running a company, that means uncertainty about your energy decisions. CPower is here to help. CPower has been helping organizations like yours chart a path to the uncertain energy future since the first open energy markets were created in the U.S. They've got a range of energy experts who will help you figure out how to make your investments and control your spend on energy. Visit com slash future to learn how Seapower can guide you across the bridge to energy's future. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, you can pause it, but you can't shut it down. We look at pauses in air pollution, in renewables, and in international climate talks. We're going to look at several contrasts in this episode. Clear blue skies were created by this economic disaster. Um, What do they mean for controlling air pollution and climate long term? Then, if diplomats can't physically assemble in November to strengthen countries' climate pledges, could that actually be a good thing? And then what happens when sun and wind produce lots of power and it doesn't get used? The gang is with me from their respective rooms in their households. Catherine Hamilton is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She is in Arlington, Virginia. Hello, Catherine.
1: Good morning. No broken bones this week.
0: Good. I was waiting for your dramatic update.
1: No, we've tried to be like as drama free as possible.
0: And in Bethesda, Maryland, it's Jigger Shah. He is the president of Generate Capital, and he's got the stars and the moon behind him.
2: How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great. My hands smell a little bit like chlorine from the cleaning of the bathrooms, but it's what we have to do these days. Indeed. OK, before we
0: get into our other three topics, I want to just start with a big piece of news out of the campaign front, and that is on Wednesday morning, Bernie Sanders said that he is getting out of the Democratic race. So it is Biden versus Trump now. I want to talk briefly about Bernie's role in this race and what his role should be now. Uh, Catherine, what influence did Senator Bernie Sanders have on this race on the energy and climate front, you think?
1: Well, he spoke about it in much more Certain and bigger terms than Biden has. So he had a much larger package, you know, tens of trillions rather than a trillion dollars of um, programs that he promoted and ambitious goals for climate. Certainly, it wasn't the, the number one priority the way it was for Jay Inslee. Medicare for all was really his number one priority, and that is also very relevant now. But that he really kept it out there as progressive as possible. And I think that actually helped everybody move a little bit in that direction. And hopefully it will give Biden a chance to kind of step up in that regard, too.
0: Jigger, what do you think the legacy of Bernie on this campaign was?
2: Well, he gave a voice to the sort of old legacy Democrats, right? Remember, back in the 70s, it was really more about labor and it was about progressivism and it was about figuring out how to help people who were in economic hardship, not just about sort of free trade and people cycling from the Treasury Department back to Wall Street and back to the Treasury Department. And he started giving real voice to people who, you know, for 35 years have not seen any improvement in their their life and, you know, have not felt like they actually were able to determine their own destiny. And I think when you look at where the Republicans are, where they're full-on socialists now in the Senate like there's actually more room for universal basic income and more room for sick leave for all and more room for people recognizing that the government has a larger role than you know what Bill Clinton and a lot of his followers uh, were imagining.
0: So let's move into our main topics. Uh, the first one is all about the steep drops in air pollution and in carbon emissions that we have seen as a result of the economic freeze. And it's really been extraordinary. So, of course, you know, a single vehicle or a furnace puts out different kinds of pollution, greenhouse gas pollution and nitrogen oxides, which make smog. And with few people driving and economic activity so diminished, the skies are dramatically different. The closest analog that people can remember is 9-11, which grounded aviation. People are now reporting that they can hear birds. They didn't even know we're there. Uh, I personally live directly next to Logan Airport here in East Boston. It's completely shut down. I'll walk past the runway on a walk, and there are no planes at all taxiing. And normally, you can hear the machinery in the background constantly. And now it's spring, we have our windows open, and all I hear is birds and an occasional dryer vent or car horn, but it really sounds like a nature preserve. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it, it's happening all over the world. There's this fantastic Twitter thread in India. Um, where people you know, in certain cities around India can see the Himalayas now for the first time in decades, and they're posting things that they can see outside their windows. Uh, people are Photoshopping in pictures of the Last Supper, the Eiffel Tower, the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> Jigger, did you see the, this meme?
2: I did. It was really, really funny. And it's sad to think that for 30-plus years, we just learned to live without it, right? That we just thought it was sort of the norm, and it was part of a modern lifestyle, right? Is that you go into modernity and then you no longer get to see the sights out your window. And I just think, you know, that level of humor and joy coming back in is good to see. And it's not
0: just that suddenly we're seeing these extraordinary views. We are seeing extraordinary improvements in public health. This temporary dip in emissions has kept thousands of people from dying of asthma and heart attacks. And the question is, After suddenly seeing the places they love clean up, will people be clamoring more for cleaner air? And what does this mean for the climate crisis as we see emissions fall? The question is, how fast will they rise back up? Uh, Jigger, any numbers stand out to you on this pollution reduction front?
2: Well in the UK, they've seen reductions of NOx pollution by 60%, which is nitrogen oxides and and I think that that number has been very similar around the world. I, I think that you know there are a lot of folks including The Guardian who's reported on the fact that they now believe that the number of people who have been saved who would have died from air pollution related illnesses is greater than the number of people who are dying from coronavirus. And those people, are dying on a regular basis year in and year out, right? I mean, folks who have uh, kids or relatives with asthma or heart disease or other things know all too well how potent air pollution is as, you know, a driver of, of you know, health impacts. And so, I mean, I do think that, that it's not really the clear views that will drive people to want to regulate air pollution as much as the safety of their family members. So, if that's the case, Jigger,
0: are we going to see in places like China and India greater demand for pollution regulations if all of a sudden 30 years of pollution is getting wiped away? I mean, does this have a lasting impact in terms of the demands that people are placing on their governments? Well,
2: remember, these governments in particular, right? India and China already have bold goals. It's been hard to implement them because of, you know, like the, the, The changes that are being requested, right? But India is already in large effect saying that they're going to ban internal combustion engines by 2035 and move into full electrification, right? And so I don't know that they would have ever hit that goal, but now they're more likely to hit that goal because people recognize what the benefits might look like from hitting that goal. And the same thing is true with China. They've had this you know, cap-and-trade system that, frankly, has not been implemented in ways that I would say are bold. But you could imagine they already have the mechanism in place, and they could actually put it in place. They also have electrification programs. I mean, BYD is one of the largest producers of electric vehicles in the world, far outstripping Tesla. And so you're talking about... Um, countries where they already have bold policy, right? It's places like the U.S. um, that I wonder whether, you know, we're really going to ban internal combustion engines in some of these states.
1: What's interesting to me is that you're able to feel in the air with the views, you're able to feel what the world would look like without pollution, And it gives people a snapshot, even though they're suffering in a lot of other ways, of what it could be. Now, when we put everything back together again, what do we want it to look like? You know what it could look like with no pollution and what it would feel like to the air that you breathe and the skies that you look at and the sounds that you hear. So what do we want to make it when it comes back? And I think that will actually give, I think, policymakers the ability to say, look, it's possible. We just have to put some provisions in place that will prevent us from going back up to where we were when this whole thing happened.
0: Let's talk about the drop in carbon dioxide emissions now. So this is temporary, obviously, but there is some significance in these numbers. We have lowered emissions during this pandemic by 25%, basically overnight. Um, And what we need to do is lower them by 40% Uh, within the next decade, but make permanent, lasting reductions. These are temporaries. It does nothing to change the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So this is temporary. But what does this say about what's possible in dropping CO2 emissions?
1: Well, I reached out to Steve Nadell from the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, and he gave me a little bit of historic perspective really, while GDP has gone up and has increased by 32% to, since 2004. our energy consumption is almost identical as it was in 2004. And so what does that mean for now and for this really huge decline in energy consumption? He says there are a few things. Certainly energy efficiency, people coming into your home, doing projects is completely shut down. And there are a lot of layoffs in that industry. So some of this, you know, is just been stopped in its tracks. Some of the trying to get become more energy efficient and reducing CO2 emissions. There's also potentially because of the lack of funding, a reduction in purchasing of energy efficiency. So even when we come back, some of the energy efficiency programs might be impacted um, if they are not included in some kind of stimulus, whether on the state or federal level. And there are a lot of state bills that were supposed to go into effect that would really help states on their carbon goals that are languishing because the state legislatures and regulators aren't really working right now. But what he said is that when the economy drops, and this happened during the Great Recession too, demand and emissions drop at least temporarily. And the problem is is that maybe they will rebound. Part of this could be due to gas prices being low, people being able to drive wherever they want to drive. But another part of it is like, how do we put into place those provisions that will help keep it low. And maybe that means more working from home. Maybe that means a lot of other things that we can put into place in stimulus bills and other in other policy methodologies that will enable us to keep those emissions
2: low. Cisco telepresence is coming back. <laughs> You think that
0: Cisco Telepresence is going to rival Zoom?
2: Well, it's certainly a better product. It's funny. I I used it several times during the Carbon War Room, but it died a fiery death, I think. But
0: Cisco Telepresence doesn't have Snapchat filters.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I totally agree with Catherine. I I would say it a little bit differently, which is that I think that there have been all of these folks, whether it's ACEEE or others, who have been saying that XYZ is possible, and for a long time, people really thought it was not possible. And I think today people recognize that it is possible. and that it is well, What do you mean? What is X, Y, Z? Well, like, you know, weatherizing 12 million homes is possible. Replacing all the light bulbs in the country with LED lights is possible. Figuring out how to convert from natural gas water heating to electric water heating is possible. Figuring out how to move from you know traditional boilers to heat pumps is possible. Electrify everything is possible. There's a lot of things out there that are possible. And when you think about what we have been told is impossible, we now no longer believe those people who are saying it's impossible. I mean, the notion that the electric utility industry today has been able to load level the grid with all of these changes, right? You think about the percentage of power that's coming from renewable energy today is far higher than it was last year, because a lot of those renewable energy plants are must-run plants, right? In the merit order curve, they bid in at zero cents a kilowatt hour, so they always get selected. And so you're talking about in Texas and California and Italy, renewable energy being 10 percentage points higher as a percentage of the grid than they were last year, right? And guess what? The grid didn't fail right so for all the people who thought that like we can't handle demand response at scale we can't handle figuring out all of these changes to be able to accommodate more decarbonization within our existing infrastructure are wrong and i think that now the question is well then what's holding us back and it's basically inertia and political will and and you know literally i would say 5 months ago right i would have said God, the era stimulus bill was impossible to pass. I can't imagine the government passing something similar. Now, in three like consecutive bills, we've passed two trillion dollars. We were talking about how you know most presidential candidates were saying one trillion is the most we can pass for climate change, and Bernie Sanders was talking about ten trillion. Well, hell, Mitch McConnell may pass ten trillion dollars with the bills this year, right? I just think that the political will is what's stopping us from solving this problem, right? I think these temporary decreases in carbon emissions has convinced me more than ever that we have the ability to reduce our carbon emissions if we want to at speed and scale. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, right? That the technology that we need exists, and that all we're doing is proving to people that it exists, and that at some point, we'll have a World War II-like mobilization, and we'll actually deploy at scale, right? And this is our chance.
1: And we'll be able to create a zillion jobs doing it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I hear what
0: you're both saying. Uh, Obviously, we've proven that energy efficiency can happen at scale, but none of those things, the LED lights, the weatherization contributed to this drop. We're talking about people who are stopping driving completely. We're talking about systems that are completely shut down, none of which have anything to do with the kinds of solutions that you're talking about. So what we're going to see is the same thing that happened in 2008 after the financial crisis. Emissions are just going to shoot way back up, and we may very well get some of these solutions funded in a stimulus bill, as we've discussed. But it feels to me like we're talking about two separate things here. Um, the 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 problem that we're facing right now is that the economy is shut down, and all the energy efficiency stuff that you outline has nothing to do with that.
2: Yeah, well, but look at but look at what's possible is my point, right? The state of New York just passed a law that basically install the person who's in charge of expediting renewable energy permitting and whatnot, right? For so long we've sorta of said we can't inconvenience one person in the United States. They have the ability to sue everybody and take it to the Supreme Court or else we can't like build infrastructure. Today, we know that's not true. If the governors actually think that something is valuable, that we need to build a transmission line to bring more clean hydro to New York City, guess what? We can do it. If, if people want to actually expedite the weatherization of homes, they can do it. We certainly shut down all the bars and restaurants and businesses. I just think that when you think about that the coronavirus crisis, which frankly is tiny. I get it's important. I get that we all should be sacrificing. I get all that stuff. I'm not bitter about that. But when you think about what's coming from 450 parts per million carbon dioxide warming, it is 100x, 1000x what we're talking about with coronavirus, right? We might actually have... 200,000 people that die in this country from from coronavirus. And it's a tragedy. But we easily could have a million people die a year from rising sea levels, from displacement, from all of the things that are going to happen from climate change. And the fact that all of these public officials have started flexing their muscles and recognizing that they have their own ability to do things outside of just federal government leadership— is impressive to me. And I don't think these these muscles are going to be forgotten anytime soon.
1: Yeah, Jigger, and this is happening all over the world. So as every country is dealing with the virus, and every country also has goals for CO2 emission reduction, they are much more starting to link recovery and stimulus with also being able to accomplish these goals and seeing this as a solution. Like we can solve two things at once, if we really focus on this and we can create jobs and we can bring back our economy and then we can also help the people who are being harmed by both coronavirus and climate disproportionately. Um, I We talked about this a couple of years ago in 2015 when the Pope put out his encyclical on climate and he has again put out some more messaging about, you know, making sure that, you know, as we deal with the coronavirus, that we shouldn't f- forget the climate, that it's all wrapped up in one piece. And I, I do think that we're at a different time. We're at a time when a lot of countries had already started thinking about how do we lower emissions and how do we allow our you know, our citizens to see what's possible by doing it and that we can do it. So now as you said, Jigger, we have the technologies to do it. People now can see that it is possible if you stop doing everything to make this happen. And now maybe we can come up with actually the political will to do it.
0: So this conversation ballooned in scale very quickly. We got to an interesting place. But I want to zero back in on the potential rebound after this crisis passes. And a lot of folks are thinking about some of the trends that are happening right now and whether they are lasting. Increased telework. Uh, Project Drawdown has telework as one of their top solutions for reducing uh, carbon emissions. So the question is, are companies and individuals going to get more comfortable with uh, folks working remotely? And what does that do to transportation emissions? Additive manufacturing is having a bit of a moment. We're using 3D printing to create ventilator parts and... I think it will cause a lot of companies to adopt 3D printing, and that, of course, is a much less resource-intensive and, therefore, carbon-intensive process. And, of course, we're all buying more stuff online. That will continue Catherine, what do you think the lasting impact will be of any of these changes?
1: So there are a lot of data on employees working from home, as just just take one bucket of this. Last summer, uh, Harvard Business Review put out a paper about not just employees working from home, because the census uh, released in 2018 said a little over 5% of U.S. workers work entirely from home. But there's something called working from anywhere, and that's really allowing employees to work from say a place where they want to retire eventually, allowing them to extend their careers longer or work from a place where their parents are located so they can be closer to taking care of them or a place that is less costly to live, that has a lower cost of living and um, will actually increase their ability to have a higher salary. So there are a lot of data on what working from anywhere will do, and workers are willing to accept less pay to work wherever they are. I know the federal government did uh, an experiment started several years ago doing this alternative work week where you would have one day off every other week um, if you worked nine-hour days. Well, now they're all working from home pretty much. Um, But the studies are really interesting because it shows That you know, work output increases. That the quality does not decrease, and there's a, a pretty significant study done with U.S. patent examiners. So there are a lot of data about it. Now it does depend on what industry you're in. It depends on what level you are in the organization. But if you have the tools, like if you have Zoom or other tools that you can use to do this, that it shows that you can be more productive. And I think that because we've been able to develop some of these tools so quickly and people are adapting now, that some of this will persist. Now, of course, we have constraints like having to also teach our kids at the same time, and hopefully that won't persist. But being able to work from anywhere and certainly working from home at a minimum um I think a lot of that will continue because we're proving out right now that we can do it and we're setting up the systems to enable even utility customer service reps that we talked about last week are able to do this.
0: Jaker, do any of these trends stand out to you as having a lasting influence on emissions after the crisis passes?
2: Well, I certainly think that there are going to be a lot more people who do telework. I think that's certainly true. I in general I'd say that you know I still think that human interaction at work actually creates a lot more creativity. And so I think you're going to see, you know, return to offices, but, but in general, um, I, in general, I see some of that. I think the bigger impact for me is going to be really more around what, occurs from all these supply chains that Amazon and Walmart and others have created I, I do think that there is going to be a lot of localization I, I think that the supply chains to China are most certainly going to be cut I think China is going to come out far more weak out of this than any other country right I think there's a lot of people who just you know got used to just-in-time you know stuff I mean just the stupidest things like raspberries and blueberries that people, you know, get just in time by passenger freight are no longer affordable because, you know, they're not being subsidized by passengers. And so cargo planes are expensive. And so I just think that a lot of stuff is going to get more local. And I think that's a good thing, right? That's what Bernie Sanders and a lot of the Trump supporters want, right, is this this globalization has really run amok. And I think a lot of folks are going to be looking at shorter supply chains and paying extra locally for, you know, the certainty of knowing who your suppliers are and them not being nameless and faceless halfway around the world, I think. But separately, just fixing things. I mean, you know, like I've had so many things that like broke in my house the last four weeks and I get repair parts and I take out the toolkit and I fix it. I think a lot of people are going to start fixing things again and not just throwing stuff away and buying new stuff just because things break, right? And so... I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of thinking about, about, exactly how do things occur in our lives, right? I mean, at least that's what's happened to me, right? It's just like, you get so used to people educating your children and, you know, the house just being cleaned once every other week and, you know, like folks just making your yard look nice and all that stuff is just not that important. And you start to realize, actually, I can do a lot of this stuff myself. And so I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of, you know, self-awareness on these issues. And I think that's going to cause... Huge shifts. I mean, my prediction is that five years from now, you're going to find that you don't recognize the world that was pre-coronavirus, that it'll be that much different than it was. It's not incrementally different. It'll be radically different from from pre-coronavirus.
1: Yeah, I totally agree, Jigger. Anybody who has grown up with someone who lived through the Depression, and I remember my grandmother doing this, like saving all the kitchen grease and putting it in a can, and I was always like, what are you going to do with this kitchen grease? Let me like, (laughs) and she'd say, well, well, I have to use it to cook again. It's like, well, you could just use the one that's in the cabinet. But if you, people who lived through the Depression, they learned how to make do with what they had. They learned how to hack. They were the original life hackers on a lot of these, uh, you know, right to repair. My grandfather could fix anything anything in the world. So I think this is going to have a greater impact than we all might think.
0: Before we get to the next segments, let's talk about our sponsor, C-Power. When it comes to making decisions about your organization's energy use and energy spend, you've got a lot of uncertainties to deal with. You don't have a crystal ball, but C-Power's experts are there to help. Uh, They're going to help you figure out, is it the right time to invest in distributed generation? How do you use it to earn revenue in your region's energy market? Is your organization maximizing demand response earnings? Seapower will help you make those decisions and build a unique bridge to energy's future. Visit the seapowerway.com future to learn more about how Seapower's team can help you. So a dramatic drop in carbon dioxide caused by an economic disaster is not a climate solution, The remedy must be permanent. And a permanent remedy is just what the international climate talks are all about. Uh, The COP conference this year was supposed to take place in Glasgow. It was going to be a big one. Uh, It was a follow-up to the 2015 Paris Climate Accord. And, of course, by 2020, countries were supposed to come to the table and update their commitments. But now the venue in Glasgow is a temporary hospital. And we don't know when or if the meeting will be held. So diplomats are all meeting online, and it's going to give them a little bit more time to figure out what happens after the U.S. elections. And that was one of the big unknowns going into the COP26 summit. So, Catherine, what was supposed to happen at this conference later this year?
1: Yeah, so the conference is supposed to be in November And this year, they were going to have to do a lot of work to make up for Madrid. Last year was considered a bit of a flop. So they were going to have to come together on some common reporting and timelines and figure out how they're going to make up the difference in the goals that they had set for themselves. And remember, these are all voluntary goals. Um, But then they were also supposed to ratchet them up for 2025, 2035, And so so it was going to be a big deal, and it was going to be co-hosted by the UK and Italy. So the UK and Italy, and Italy is certainly very hard hit by the coronavirus, and the UK is getting there as well. So both of these countries are on the front line of the coronavirus and really did need to push it out. Um, Chile is actually the head of the COP this year. And so they've been updating their goals and trying to figure out, you know, how do we how are we able to talk about it? How are we actually able to get co-benefits from dealing with the pandemic and the climate goals? Interestingly, in 2021, the UK and Italy are also co-hosts of the G7. So that's the economic summit. So they would potentially both of those countries would be co-hosting both the environmental and economic summits for all of these nations. And it is significant that it's being pushed, but it also, the benefit is that it will give countries more time to come up with some solutions and work offline with their, you know, sub-nationally and with smaller groups to try to figure out how do we then talk about our goals and realize the difference in what we had volunteered that we were going to do versus what we're actually doing.
0: Just precisely what we have, right, is more time uh, to solve this crisis, (laughs)
1: Also, what's interesting is that the cops happen in November, and remember, these are like fifteen to twenty-five thousand people coming together over two weeks. So that is a very large group. That's very dangerous to put that many people together in conditions that we have today, potentially. Um, But it was going to happen this year, right after the U.S. election, and it would have been the first time that the U.S. would be only an observer. So the U.S. would no longer be a party to the agreement, would no longer have any influence over the negotiations, and we. would merely be an observer. So this also gives us more time if the administration changes for um, would be Biden to immediately get us back in so that we would not just be an observer in the next cop.
0: Jigger, what do you think the consequences to the talks are, either positive or negative?
2: Well, the consequences to these kinds of talks are always the same, right? Which is basically that these really important people don't get to spend quality time together, right? And, like, Zoom is not quality time, right? The reason these things occur is not because... I think, for whatever reason, people, like, try to fixate on the U.S. and some of these other countries that have bureaucracies and processes and procedures. But a lot of these other countries have none of that, right? If you're one of the other 175 countries... Like you're kind of just making the shots, like you know, on the floor. You're like, "I'm Costa Rica, and we're gonna do this," and "I'm Guatemala, and we can do this," right? And and a lot of that occurs based on, you know, peer-to-peer negotiations and just getting folks like to believe and understand, and we can do this, and da da da, whatever. And those rah-rah things don't happen on Zoom, right? They kind of happen in. Like quiet corners in meetings where people have these conversations, and then you know someone says, "Hey, I've got a guy, and he's got a technology, and he'd be perfect for your your country, and you should go talk to him, and da da whatever else." And and then things happen magically at these meetings that wouldn't have happened if they were all on Zoom, right? And so it's those like sort of sidebar meetings and quiet meetings and stuff that where the real magic happens. And it's going to be a shame that we're not going to have it this year. I totally agree with canceling it because of the coronavirus. But I think that diplomacy really does matter, as we've talked about on this podcast many times before. And it comes from people really understanding each other at a human level and not just on a business talking point level.
1: That's true. But at the same time, Jigger, a lot of these countries, emerging economies especially, it is very economically difficult for them to get to some of these meetings. And so being able to do it virtually actually helps them engage in a way that is a little more equalized. The issue now is that after the UK and Italy host the next COP, which could be in 2021, the following one was supposed to be hosted by an African country. And that's really important because they need to be part of the solution. And those economies have really different constraints than EU and UK and US have.
0: Yeah, well, this is real diplomacy. And then clearly there's a net positive in building relationships in person and dealing with a a, a deadline that you need to meet as you work your way through negotiations. But you can still do a lot with virtual meetings, and there is a benefit to waiting for the outcome of the U.S. election. Okay, let's turn to our last subject, which is the curtailment of renewables, both wind and solar, a lot of solar. Uh, electricity use is way down across the country, and that closely correlates with economic activity. Electricity is, of course, a moment-to-moment affair, and uh, if you know we're suddenly using less electricity, someone has to deliver less, and it's not always pretty. Turns out, we're seeing curtailments all over the world as the coronavirus slices off electricity consumption. A record curtailment in the world's fifth-largest economy, California. California had already been shedding a lot of solar power to begin with, and uh, the fourth-largest economy, India, is also dealing with it as well. And we're going to see this in states all across America. Jigger, what is happening here, and is it different than what we were seeing previously?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know when you look at electricity sales, they're down five to eight percent across most of the U.S. I mean, it's a lot less in my territory, more in California, New York, a little bit in Texas. I think in general, um, I don't know that electricity demand reductions is what's driving curtailment. It's really more just choke points on the grid, which we've had for a long time. I think that you know it it is maximized in March and April, so the stay-at-home orders is not helpful. But at the end of the day, um, I think we need to put some of these large numbers in perspective, which is that last year, roughly 3% of all of the solar power in utility scale solar in California were curtailed. And so that's a pretty small number and, and enviable actually most, uh, um, power generators would love a 97% capacity factor. So from the perspective of, you know, what they're allowed to sell, I think it's pretty good. It is getting worse and there are a lot of technologies by which to solve it. So the state of California has announced that by 2026, they need a thousand megawatts of, of long-term storage, right? You know, seasonal storage. And so they're looking at different technologies from energy vault that got money from SoftBank to other technologies like uh, Compressed air storage underneath the ground, and there's lots of other technologies out there. And so I think there's that. And then there's also an entire th- stream that I've been pushing, which is the green hydrogen stuff. And that's been moving pretty steadily as well. And so I do think there's a lot of solutions to the problem. But the biggest challenge here is not the technology side of it. The biggest challenge is how we actually permit and install new renewable energy technologies and how all of the parties and stakeholders together. Uh, come around to figuring out what the new paradigm is. So right now, the electric utilities just say, sorry, that node is congested, so we're not going to give you permission to interconnect there, even though you've got 1,000 acres and you have the ability to get power there. But in the future, they could say, well, here are the problems on that node. How would you suggest fixing it in exchange for approval? And you could imagine that solar plant saying, well, crap. I mean, we're going to spend $500 million anyway on this plant. We might as well spend another $12 million for an electrolyzer on site that gets used, or we might spend another $15 million on putting some seasonal storage in place at that node, right? And, and working with the utility company to figure out more novel ways of solving problems that aren't just building more transmission lines and distribution lines, which we all need, but take a long time to get Constructed. So I think this is sort of creating a new process by which everyone works out how to get more wind and solar installed
1: yeah, and I think Jigger to that point, certainly, there are technology solutions, whether it's distributed energy resources, dynamic line ratings and control technologies, sensors, things like that, that allow you to have a lot more visibility and control over the system and and all those congestion points. but also the market rules are really important. So can renewables function as ancillary services if they're being curtailed? like can we use them for other purposes other than what they're supposed to be or what they've signed up to be? And just allowing those market rules to Actually, get the full value of what are the resources at the time that it's needed. So, this
0: was a problem, particularly in California, well before this crisis. What I'm hearing you say, Jigger, is that this may accelerate the process to do something about the problem.
2: Yeah, that's right. There are literally gigawatts and gigawatts of renewable energy projects across the country that have been stymied because they can't have a mature conversation about this. So, right now, the only thing people can do is say, we're going to interconnect at this node, we're going to be subjecting ourselves to curtailment at any time, and we're going to you know, pay Alliance or somebody else to wrap the the wholesale power prices, we're going to pay them an arm and a leg to do that, and that's how we get financed, right? So basically, all of the pain and suffering gets put onto the solar and wind developer, And the system itself does not do anything to accommodate figuring out how to accelerate the deployment of these projects. So you could imagine, as this problem gets more acute, which is made even worse by the coronavirus— that there are now public service commissioners and others that are saying, damn it, you guys are actually going to sit down and figure this out. Like, stop with the goddamn pilot projects and stop with all this crap, and you're going to sit at a table and figure out how to unlock all this economic development. Because we need it. We need it right now. New York State has passed a law that requires a, a new office get set up to do some of this stuff to expedite permitting but it isn't actually expediting interconnection. And that's the next stage, right? All this curtailment is gonna force the people who run the grid and force the utility companies to come to the table and say, how do we deal with this? Because you can't just say that we're going to wait 10 years for a new transmission line. There has to be other things that we can do. And oh, by the way, here are all the technologies that have already been written about in green tech media, but you're not actually you know, looking at as potential solutions to solve this problem. And so I think there's a forcing mechanism here
1: we have seen this and done this before, and we know we can. So in 2017, when when we had the Great American Eclipse, which went across the country, and I remember visiting with Cal ISO at the time, and they're being super prepared about what do we do when all these solar systems drop offline and demand drops and then what happens when they come back. And Nest Thermostats was able to time simply by calling customers a few minutes in advance, a thousand megawatts of Nest thermostats across the country tracking the solar to make sure that there wasn't a surge. So we've done this before and an interesting story came out of India where they were going to do nine minutes of solidarity where everybody cut out their lights. And they needed to prepare the grid for this. And they expected about a 15% drop in load. It ended up being a 25% drop in load, the actual, but they, they managed it really well. Um, Manya Ranjan, who is an asset manager for Sterilite Power, that's the largest private transmission company in India, um, said it just went incredibly well that they were able to manage all of the transmission and production assets and switch off transmission lines, taking reactors off service. They were able to do voltage and line control that that allowed them to manage it. So I we know how to do this, And the issue is making sure that we have the technologies in place where we need them in those congestion points and that we have the market rules in place that allow us to participate fully.
2: And this is in stark contrast to the situation in 2012 when uh, this kind of outage actually led to rolling blackouts in India. So I think that the progress has been just extraordinary.
0: And here we are. Let's turn now to our free electrons. Jigger. What's
2: caught your ear or your eye this week?: So I've actually got a lot of really good things uh, that I've been reading, but I wanted to um, pivot a little bit and stress to all of our listeners that like this is go time. Um, if you actually have challenges in your business from you know the coronavirus, or uh, you need stimulus like sixteen o three or you need other things. Nobody on the Hill is hearing you, right? That's what I'm hearing from everyone on the Hill. They're saying, we are not hearing enough from the clean energy industry. And so I know that you thought your neighbor called their member of Congress and you thought your, you know, dog called their veterinarian. But like like you need to start making phone calls. You need to start filling out surveys. You need to start getting involved in the process. Cause this is go time. You know, like COVID four, I don't actually know the nomenclature. I don't hope we don't get to COVID nineteen. But like that bill has now gotten pushed off from stimulus because um because we need a lot more help for, for responders and small businesses and that kind of stuff. But at some point, probably in June, we'll pass a stimulus bill. And we're not on track to getting everything we wanted. So I just think that people are taking this way too lightly. If you really want something for your business, this is the moment. This is the week that you actually have to start organizing and making sure that we humanize our industry.
1: Exactly. Tell them how many jobs are impacted and how many jobs you could create if you had an infusion of funding.
0: Catherine, what's your free electron?
1: So a couple of things I wanted to mention. One, and I know um, Jigger mentioned New York State, but Ann Arbor, Michigan has also decided that in part of their coronavirus recovery is going to be to continue clean energy goals, that this will help them on both fronts. Um, and then I also wanted to just point to some of the... Things that are happening online, Uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt do a weekly show uh, called um, Some Good News, where they talk about good news stories about coronavirus. And, you know, these are things that really bring us a lot of joy out there. Um, And then finally, I wanted to just mention a hero of mine and many, many, many others throughout the country in folk music that passed from coronavirus, who was John Prine. And, wrote the sort of seminal song about coal mining uh, paradise. So I wanted to just give him a shout out too.
0: So I've been paying attention to the incredible food waste crisis that's going on in this country. Um, What we're going to see is, you know, nearly a billion and a half dollars in farm losses just uh, from March through May. And, you know, farmers, because of the shift from you know, food service to food retail. Farmers are just not getting their products out to restaurants and warehouses and food processing facilities in the same way. And so you have all these food banks that are crowded and, you know, have mile long lines of cars to get to them and they run out of food. And it is very disheartening. And on a lighter side of that story, I have been doing my part to reduce food waste in the house i've actually enjoyed cooking a lot and finding all sorts of things that are in the back of the cabinet that you can throw into the crock pot and digging up old spices and you know old cans of food that we bought for some reason that we're not using i found it kind of a joy to use all these different elements of food in in my house that i you know may have previously passed over
2: I have all sorts of these random spice packets from people's weddings where they thought that like giving me spice packets was the right move and uh, I haven't used them and so we're now just adding them to like stews where we just add random ingredients into like a pot and, and just make it into a vegetable stew
1: It's like the right to repair but it's the right to eat <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it that's the end of the show, folks. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts, and I am Stephen Lacey. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you can, or over there on Stitcher. And subscribe to the show if you don't already, anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find us all on social media. Please let us know your thoughts on the show, or if you have any other story ideas. And thank you so much for listening. Stay well, stay safe, stay sane, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.